You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Hey, it is great to see everybody here today. What a beautiful day. And you're sitting to, how many are sitting next to some amazing people? Yeah, good. Hey, uh, uh, just a couple, this morning I met in first service, uh, I was speaking with a family, just recently joined the bridge. And you know, and I said the typical, hey, good to see you. How are you doing? He said, man, today's a great day. I said, why is that? He said, "Uh, you don't know this, but he said, I've been unemployed since January 1 and I got a job offer this week and I accepted it and I got a job this week. And I said, man, that's awesome. And then I said, now let me ask you the most important question I have. He said, what's that? I said, do you have to move? (laughs) He said, no, I get to stay put, man. Uh, No relocation required, everything. Because he said, man, we just connected here. We're so excited. And he said, that was one of our fears. And so, you know, it's great to see God answering prayers for people, right? In the middle of where they are in life. The other thing is, we talked about three services. So we're going to be launching that on March 17th, okay? So that's about a month away. And we've had a number of people that have turned in the application and the background checks for ushers and children's ministry. If you haven't done that yet, we really could. We can't do background checks in two days. Hey, we need some time. So if you could get those in, that would really help us. But uh, we're gonna try to do this a couple weeks before Easter so that we have everything ready to go. So March 17th will be the launch date of that third service, which doesn't change the time that this service does. Everybody understand that? We're just adding one that'll start at noon. Today, we're gonna continue on in growing in faith and truth. I began the series a while ago on the Gospel of John. I'm not able to preach every single verse. That would take a long time. So I'm highlighting certain segments of of the book that I think have a strong message for us and relevancy. So today we're gonna be going into the uh, Gospel of John chapter five. Would everybody stand for the reading of the word? And I do know that this is a lengthy passage, so you're just gonna have to focus better. (laughs) All right, so uh, John chapter five, verses one through 15. Come on, everybody read with me. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Whoops. I'm getting too excited here. 
Let's begin. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray as the word is taught that it just doesn't fill our mind with academic information. I pray that it influences the values, that it, it influences the things in our life whereby we make decisions. I pray that everything in our being is affected. And you know, God, the momentum is of everyone in this room. And so I pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to whatever the momentums are, wherever people are, you know what they need. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Amen, amen. the Lord bless you and be seated. So in this series, we've been highlighting a couple things about the Gospel of John before we get into the text. And I kind of want to set that up again. But one of the things I uh, have reiterated over and over is why did John write his Gospel when Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already written their Gospel? And this is uh, quite a few years after the three had written their Gospel. Why did John feel compelled? Well, a couple of things is this. By this time, John is, is the last living among the original 12 disciples. And so he actually tells us at the end of his book about it. He says, in John chapter 20, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so in his gospel, he actually, 90% of what he has to say was not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He sees there's a number of stories about Jesus that he would like to make sure gets out there. The other part of this, I think, is, and this is my opinion on this, but we know that John was Jesus's closest friend. While he had a relationship with the 12, he was very close with, with, uh, with James, Peter, and John. But we also read that he was very, even more close to John. And so a lot of the gospel, I think, that he wrote reveals a lot more what I call that friendship that he had with Jesus. And he recounts a number of stories that the other uh, writers of the gospels left out. He wasn't criticizing. He wasn't saying they were wrong. He just, how many know we all have a, a system where we think certain stories are more important than others? You know, it's kind of like this area. Everybody thinks the Washington Commanders are more important news than Kansas City. <laughs> you know, even with a losing record, if you want to know about the Washington Commanders, you, how many know you come talk to us? Okay, some of you are not on board and you need to get saved. <sighs> you know, it's just, they're just stories that matter more to us than other people's stories, okay? And that's what John's doing here. So here's an insight. We, he wrote his gospel, we're kind of approximating around 85 AD. Why is that important? Because it actually sets up a historical fact that I want to tell you about today's uh, uh, passage that we're reading. I always try to give a little bit of background history so that you can go, oh, I understand better what this is saying. So this is important. He wrote in 85, 85 AD his gospel. So Jerusalem and the temple were wiped out in 70 AD. So it's been at least 15 years, okay? 
And so what's happened is this. You now have a generation of people who are, who, who are on the scene now and they're coming of age. They never, they don't know what the temple is. Okay? Suddenly there's this cultural divide of people who go, you know, I went to the temple. I know what it is. I, I saw it. I have experiences, and now you have a whole nother generation that has come up and they go, well, the temple is just an idea to me. It's a concept because I never saw it. I never experienced it. In fact, it doesn't exist. If I went there today, I don't, see the t- I don't have a picture of the temple in its glory. I have a picture of the temple in its destruction. Now, to show you, that really, we can connect with that, okay? Let's, and, I, and I say this out of the most sincerest reverence. I'm not trying to make an irreverent comparison, but you need to understand, we have the same thing in our culture, the World, Tower, the, the World Trade Center. Many of you, like myself, remember when they stood. We remember. In fact, some of you and some of us, we went in there. Uh, my parents had to do some travels and they would go there and they would oftentimes go up top and eat in, in the restaurant that was on top. So a lot of times when you tell the story about the World Trade Center today and you realize you're talking to somebody who never knew a day when they stood, you have a tendency to tell some stories of what it was like to be there. Okay, that's also a sign that you're getting older. Okay, but it's just, it's just the nature of who we are. When, and so you see this actually in the Gospel of John here. He knows that many people who are starting to read his Gospel, they don't know what the temple is. The only thing they know is it's gone. And so look at this passage. John records a few historical facts about the temple due to its recent destruction. That's why he goes into such detail in this verses two and three. He says, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, So can you see how he's starting to get into the weeds? He's like, this is not a story. I was there. I know the sights, the sounds, the smells. I have stories. And he's now trying to tell people whereby maybe in their context, their parents or grandparents are just saying, the temple looked like this, you know, drawing it out. And here's in it. And so he's making detailed reference because he's trying to create some pictures in their mind. He says, there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. By the way, that's the only time the word Bethesda is used in scripture. And which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now here in America, some of you are gonna go, I need to look up what that is. But to them, you know, created a mental picture, especially for somebody who never experienced it. And then it says, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Did you see, notice the phraseology, used to? See how he's painting the picture? I'm trying to, he's trying to say, look, I don't know what your concept is of this temple, but I was there. I was there multiple times. I saw Jesus do a lot of stuff. And there's one particular thing that stands out. In fact, I even remember, here's the location. Here's what it looked like. And here's, here's, here's a little bit of description. And let me tell you the people that were in this location of the temple. So he really goes into great detail trying to get an experience of the temple across the people who have, ne- who, well, who have never saw it and never will. I mean, to this day, the temple has not been rebuilt, okay? So we're gonna look at some points. Now, here's the challenge I have about today's message. Once I was done, I had 10 points. And then I thought of my audience. And I thought, Lord, how much endurance doth they really have? (laughs) So I had to cut it down quite a bit. You say, well, how much did you cut it down? I'm not telling you. 
I'm just gonna give you the experience of seeing how much I cut out today, okay? Because we're just gonna go through this. So I'm gonna try, I, I cut it down to what I thought were some really pivotal points, okay? So number one, it reads a little different, but stay with it saying it. Come on, let's read it together. The stories of God's power in our yesterdays cultivates a hope for God's power in our todays. It's interesting that John tells a, tells a story that actually makes people feel a little uncomfortable today. He says, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, the first one into the pool, after each disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. He's sharing a story of God's temple was not devoid of the miraculous. There's this mentality that somehow there was a temple and nothing ever good happened there. And the only time anything good happened was when Jesus showed up. Well, let me just say this. We still read in the Bible that they were bringing their sacrifices and offering sacrifices for sins and things like that. Okay, that was, that was the way that God said that they could be forgiven. We need to know that even though we see the dark side of the temple, okay, with the interactions that Jesus had with the leadership, we know that, right? It doesn't mean the temple was devoid of God's activity, it just means that some of the dark things that leaders were doing in their day were making it hard for people to see God's activity. But he still, in fact, Jesus showed up, he flips the tables because he said this should be known as a house of prayer. He didn't say it used to be known as a house of prayer. He said it is a house of prayer. So if we're not careful, we can kind of go, yeah, it was just a stone building, a lot of resources just sitting there doing people no good. No, there were some things that were happening. The other side of this is we need to hear those stories so that we have hope for today. If we know what God does back then, we can know what God's capable of doing today. But here's the struggle we have as followers of Christ. If we're not careful, we'll make a doctrine out of the method rather than using the method to help us discover the doctrines about God. If you're not careful, you actually doctrinalize how back in 1970, and I'm like, well, praise God for what he did for you in the 1970s. We need to make sure that that translates into the world today about how people are changed today. But sometimes we fall in love with how God does things and we want that to be the template of how he did it in me. That's how he's gonna do it in you. And it's like, no, we need to hear those stories because, okay, let me give you an example. We read in the Bible that Jesus spit in the dirt, created mud, and put it on a guy's blind eyes, and he was healed. Now, we're not gonna start a spitting mud ministry here at the bridge <laughs> for healing. Has everybody got it? And everybody said, thank you, pastor. <laughs> right, I mean, you know, I mean, but we, we have to realize that was a method, and, and yeah, it makes us uncomfortable. We're like, man, Jesus, so unhygienic what you did. Okay, but, but we don't do it. And, and there's another one in the Gospel of Acts. It says that Peter's shadow was healing. Now, you kind of got to figure this. How did they figure that out? Somebody must have said, have you noticed where Peter's shadow goes, people get healed. Watch, I'm telling you. Everybody on this side, nothing's happening. Over here, but wait, it, it doesn't happen until the shadow gets there. The, the apostles didn't go, we're starting a shadow ministry. <laughs> we're gonna have shadow seminars. I know, but I know that sounds like I'm embellishing, but I'm telling you, there are people who would do that. They would doctrinalize 
the method and try to say, this is how God does that. Instead of saying, God, I know you heal. Why don't you show me how you want to do that? Peter never set out to have a shadow ministry. And by the way, his shadow ministry never continued. Okay, you know what the Bible does tell us? Why don't you lay hands on the sick and anoint him and pray? You say, okay, do you realize what a step of faith back there that was? Because they believed if you touch a sick person, you get it too. Wow. Now, I know we understand a few more things in the science realm and all that, but in that day, they didn't have the understanding. And just to be told as followers of Jesus, we go touch the sick and we pray. Yeah, you pray. You know why? Because you need to be protected as well. Wow. Now, we know there's some diseases that are communicable. Okay, we get that. But the fact that Christians would go lay hands on the sick, the Bible tells us that was the normative practice. They could have only hoped that the shadow would have done everything. But Christians were expected to step out in faith and put their hands on sick people and pray. And in their culture with the ideology and the thought, I could get this. How many know you really start believing God for healing at that point? Right. So we need those stories, but let's be careful that we don't try to reproduce our history. Let's let the history confirm that God is active and moving and I need to see what he's doing today. And everybody said amen. Okay, number two, read it out loud. God will never, he'll never give you what you're not asking for. This is interesting. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? You almost gotta go, well, duh. <laughs> Did you know after 38 years, you can just get comfortable that this is your new normal? and even give up hope that anything can change? And you just go, look, I, I've got my order, I got my world in order. Um, I know my lifestyle is not what I want, but hey, uh, I got a system, I know where my breakfast is coming from. I know where my lunch is. I know my dinner. I know how I'm gonna get here. I know if I need to go anywhere, I know how to, I, I've ordered my life around this thing that controls my life, I'm good. And, if there, if, and sometimes we, we lose even the hope that something can change because once you've, you're in this situation and you have everything in order, you recognize if anything changes, all the order of everything in your life is flipped upside down. And so Jesus says, do you even wanna get well? See, some people aren't even asking God for some things that you and I are asking for them. You're, you're asking God to set somebody free from drugs, but is the drug addict asking to be set free? You're asking God to set a drunk free, but is the drunk asking to be set free? I mean, I could list item after item after item we know what they need, but they're not asking. In fact, sometimes people will say this to me. Hey, pastor, will you be praying for this in my life? I say, sure, one condition. What, are you praying that too? Because I don't substitute pray. You know, me praying for you does not relieve you of your responsibility to pray. 
So I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you, but I'm not subs. And I love this one. I need you to pray real hard. <laughs> pray hard. So let me get it. There's easy prayer, there's medium prayer, and there's hard prayer. Uh, I've always thought prayer was prayer, you know? So, well, okay, are you praying hard? Because I don't want to pray hard if you're not going to pray hard. If you're praying easy, I'm praying easy. But I'm not doing the work for you. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. And then the other one. I need you to fast and pray. Are you fasting? Because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing the fasting for you. Okay. I mean, I, you, you see how sometimes we deflect and you're not even sure the person really believes what they're saying because of how they're saying it. You're kind of like, it sounds like me, you, you want me to do the work. You want me to do the warfare for you. And I'm willing to come alongside and willing to pray with you, but I'm not your prayer substitute. I'll be a prayer partner. That'll do. I'll agree with you. But if, like I said... God will never give you what you're not. It's, it's, some, it's amazing what people are not asking for. Given what's going on, you think there would be a, a little more desperation. And they're not because they get comfortable with what's happening. And that takes us to the next one. Every read, everyone read this. You need a miracle when your problem becomes your identity. The scripture calls him an invalid. It's his identity. We never get his name. At this point in the Bible, it just says he's an invalid. And by the way, it's only, the word invalid is only used twice in the New Testament. It's both times in this story. And one is to describe what's wrong with him. And the other one, it says, it says sir, the invalid re replied. It doesn't say, sir, he replied. His identity now is he's an invalid. That's, that's, who he, that's how people describe him. You know, the guy who's an invalid. Oh, yeah. In our culture, there are people who have crises in their life and addictions. And the addiction is now their identity. He's a drug addict. They're a drunk. They're a gangbanger. Even as followers of Christ, we can fall into the trap that we forget there's a human being behind all those labels and we start using the labels ourselves to describe who they are. And if that's you this morning, you're the drunk. You're the drug addict. You're the gangbanger. You're the, you're the this. You're the that. Can I tell you, you actually need more of a miracle than you think you do because the problem you have has now become your identity. And that's what the beauty of the gospel is. It just doesn't say it's a forgiveness of sin. It says that we are a new creation in Christ. He changes the label that sin gave me and he changes my life and I get to change the label that sin pushed on me. I can be a different person. I'm not stuck. That doesn't mean I don't have to do more work than other people who don't have those addictions and problems, but still I have hope that I can change and be referred to as a guy, as a man, as a husband, as a pastor, 
I don't have to be referred to by some type of addiction or something that once controlled my life. He can change you, friend. The invalid replied, I tell you, that's what needed the change. He needed to be stopped calling that, being called that. That's what he needed. And what happened? Number four, read it out loud. Sometimes, sometimes we miss the miracle because we're not in community with others, which can cause us to get labels even more because we're not in community with people. They don't know us and they don't know their, and we all, you know, we, we all have that self-defense mechanism that allows us to win any argument. Stop judging me. I go, really? Can you like get off of that? The reason people are doing that is because of what you're doing. Well, they shouldn't. I said, trust me, you'll make a thousand judgments today. When you leave this place, you'll get in your car and you will judge every driver coming at you. If you see an emergency vehicle or a police officer, you will, you will judge the presence of that officer and some of you will hit the brakes. Because you will come to the judgment of I am exceeding the speed limit and I think it's their responsibility to look for people like me. And so, wow, you've judged that police officer that he's going to judge you. See what I mean? We get... We have these phrases that get people off of our back, but it doesn't change the storyline. <laughs> he said, sir, the inv- I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. I am trying to get in. Someone else goes down ahead of me. Here's what the problem is. His being an invalid for 38 years, he's got no community left. And sometimes God deposits the miracle into a community and the reason you don't have a miracle is God says, I wanna use people to meet your need, but you can't even get along with them. And so you ask for an answer, I gave an answer, but you won't connect to them. So because you don't connect, there's no answer for you. But God says, I have answered. You just don't like where I put it. Many times God uses other people to meet your needs. But if you don't put yourself in community, and by the way, that's something we push here at the bridge, right? Get involved in connection group, get involved in community. Because that's where when you hit a crisis and a need, I'm telling you, God's going to use those people. I can't tell you how many times the the pastoral team, we've been notified of a crisis in people's lives. And our connection group leaders, man, they're like, they're like pastors, They'll call us and say, hey, we want to let you know such and such. There was a death or there was a wreck. There was a this, there was a that. And, you know, we, we immediately go, oh, you know, we're thinking in our mind. What do I need to do? And they always, these connection group leaders will go, we just thought you'd want to know, but our group has got it all under control. We've already started deploying and people are doing this and people are helping here and they're doing this. But we didn't want you as a pastoral team to be caught off guard by not hearing about it, and we wanted you to be informed. But we don't need anything. The group has got this. And then you know what we always hear later on? The person who was in crisis and need, they'll come, Pastor Lisa, that connection, I know you got a lot of connection group leaders, but my group is the best. Now don't tell all the others I said that, because some of those other group leaders are my friends. But I'm telling you, the one I got, they are the best. Let me tell you what they did for us. And inevitably, the people 
who knew that person in crisis who don't come to church always say, I have never seen so many people back up their proclamation by what they did. Is that normal for your group and your church? And everybody at the bridge said, yeah. But you, listen, you get connected before the crisis. It's hard to get those connections when the crisis happens and you haven't been connected. Please let people know who you are. And you say, well, I don't need anything. Well, get over your narcissism. Maybe you need to get in a group because somebody else is gonna be in a crisis and you need to help. Why does that always have to be about you? Well, I don't need nothing, good. We'll take what you have and help somebody else. You know, we, we always want others to be there and then we aren't. It's a two-way street. There's nothing better than to have a friend Look at you and say, I just want you to know your presence meant everything to me as I went through that crisis. You made an impact in my life or you touched my family or you touched my friends. You were amazing. I'm telling you what, be careful. What I just said can become addictive. Because man, once God uses you in a positive way in somebody else's need, you're like, sign me up for that again, Jesus. Where else do I need to go? It's... It's a good feeling to go home, put your head on the pillow and just say a prayer before you fall asleep. God, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that I had to make a difference in somebody's life. Can we do that again next week? Yeah. Sometimes we miss our miracle because we're not in community. Let's move on. Number five, read it out loud. Miracles... Some people don't want a miracle because it means a change. Look what Jesus said. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Jesus told him to do three things. We all want, we want the miracle, just don't give me any responsibility. Jesus said, get up. He didn't, he didn't say, hey, somebody go help him. Jesus said, no, you get up. You pick up your mat and walk. These were new and new. Do you realize that after this, begging was no longer an option? This boy was gonna have to go get a job. <laughs> Some people shy away from the miraculous because they go, you know, I've, I've, I've developed a resourced world based on my condition and if God heals that, then I lose all this and then, so, you know, I'm good. I, I'm good. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna lose all the resources that are associated. You know, I just want God to relieve the suffering, but I don't necessarily, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd have to go out and get a job. So I'm good. Just pray for me. Miracles bring on new responsibilities. It also moves us, miracles can move us from the position of needing something to be given to us. It can move us from the position of now God expects you to give. From receiving to giving. And you're like, oh, you know, 
Don't know if I'm ready for that kind of radical change in my life. See, miracles don't always produce the warm fuzzies in the long term. It's a warm fuzzy in the immediate, and then you go, wow, this thing plays out. Like, people look at me different. Like, I have, they expect me to take responsibility. I have to get some new momentums in my life. I might be looking at a change of pace and lifestyle here because I'm no longer controlled by this. I can tell it's really going well. Let's see if I can get it on a good note. <laughs> you say, how many more you got? As many as I can do. Here we go. Number six, read it out loud. Miracles relieve, reveal the dissonance that exists in people's lives. Interesting passage here. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Wow, a guy is walking after 38 years and we're gonna have a debate because he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. How many know that's a cold glass of water on a hot moment for Jesus? The law is of more value than the change in momentum in a guy's life. They don't even celebrate that he's walking 38 years, he's got his legs, he's able to walk, and the only thing that they want to have a discussion about is stop carrying your mat. Wow. Miracles have a way of exposing dissonance in our beliefs about what God can do, should do, ought to do. And then get this, there's another dissonance moment here. So they, 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 the, the man, no, so notice he's no longer the invalid. He's a he. He replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Oh, let's blame Jesus. <laughs> you see a pattern in this guy's life? First of all, he wasn't getting into the water because it was other people weren't there to get him in. So it really wasn't his fault. So people weren't getting him into the water in time. And now he's in trouble for carrying his mat, but it's really not his fault because Jesus told him to do it. Can you start to see this guy's got a stronghold in mentality? It's, it's everybody else. And it reveals this dissonance. He gets, he gets sucked into the conversation about carrying his mat. His reply should have been, you know, carrying the mat is the least of my worries right now. I just got my legs back after 38 years. And if the biggest thing I'm doing wrong is carrying my mat, get, a, get used to it. Because I'm going to be carrying it a lot more. He falls right into the trap. This dissonance of, oh, well, it's not my fault. He told me. Sometimes God does things in ways that we don't like. We uh, see people that we think God should have dealt with them differently, which takes me to my last point. Here we go. I'm gonna squeeze this in. Read it out loud. The miraculous is designed to bring us into relationship with Jesus and to change how we live. So they said to him, who is this fella who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that he was there. Well, Jesus, we need to have a, a discussion about the fact that you shouldn't be doing miracles and not telling people who you are. This guy gets a miracle and doesn't even know who to give the credit to. And sometimes as followers of Jesus, you're going, hey, um, 
You, you know, Jesus, from here on, you, you might want to make it a prerequisite. No miracles unless they get saved first. Because, you, you know, people are using your power and authority. Sometimes it's very hard for us to understand how God does that. God will heal somebody that we go, you know what? I don't think they need heal, Jesus. I think somebody needs to take their flip-flop off and give them a good spiritual spanking. <laughs> and some of you are going, that sounds very violent, what you just said. That's what I told my mother when she did that to me when I was a kid. Okay. I mean, sometimes you look at a person and go, they don't need a miracle, they need a good slap. And Jesus, you know how to do that. And it bothers us when they get a miracle and we go, I'm not saying they're not qualified, but they're not qualified. I know their life, I know their history, I know what they're like, and I don't understand because I got a friend over here who really loves Jesus, really holy, gives all the time, loves, loves people, does everything. They're the ones that sh should have gotten the miracle and that one needed to get slapped. And instead you heal them and my friend is still, nothing's changed. Jesus, I got a problem with how you prioritize things in your kingdom. Jesus healed a guy and didn't even bother to tell him who he was. You don't think there's other people who knew Jesus and said, well, if he won't acknowledge you, I will. The man who, he had no idea. So what does he do? Look at this. The story gets worse. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or someone, something worse may happen to you. So obviously, the, even, he's an, even though he was an invalid, the guy knew how to sin. And he's been healed and he has just put it on steroids. And finally, Jesus calls him out and just says, see, you're well again. If you don't stop this, it's something worse is gonna happen. See, you and I would say, well, you should have used the healing as a carrot to say, get your act together, accept me as your Lord and Savior. Let me, let me see your holy living. You know, start to tithe or something like that. Give the missions. Oh, okay, now that you got all your orders, now we'll give you a miracle. Jesus didn't do any of that. He just said, I'm gonna heal this man. And then he uses that miracle to, listen, to address his relationship with Jesus and get this, and to address his holiness. That's, that's, that's something we don't like, you know, in America. We, I don't know why it is. We see all the word grace in the Bible, but nobody sees the word holy. I'm not, you know, it's both. Holy is in response to grace. Grace produces holiness. Holiness leans us into grace. It's not, it's not one or the other. It's actually both. But somehow this, even the holiness preaching is being pushed aside because, well, you know, that upsets people. And I go, well, you know, it's kind of what we do in the gospel. We tell people some hard truths that maybe somebody else is not telling them. Let's, let's tell them so that they understand how to have a relationship with God. And let me tell you this, he came to change how you live. He wants to change the momentum. He wants to turn you from a drunk to sober. He wants to turn you from a drug addict to a former drug addict. He wants to turn you from a gangbanger to a former gangbanger. He wants to turn you into a person who has a testimony. Yeah, that's what I once was, but now I'm a new creation. Yeah, I used to be a Saul, but now I'm a Paul. He changed me. Some of you sitting here today as I wrap up the service, here's the problem you have. You think, who told this pastor I was in this service today? Why is he telling my junk? First of all, I didn't know that was you. 
And secondly, maybe that's what you need to hear is he can change what you are when you walked into this building and when you walk out, you can be a different person. But hear this, he doesn't wanna save you and make you feel safe about your current decisions and your current lifestyle. He says, I'm here to save you and I'm here to change your choices and I'm here to change your lifestyle. And if you're ready to do that, he says, we have something in common that he can do for you today. But Jesus is not about consoling you in a state that he says, I'm sorry, those are wrong choices and those are what have put you in the jam that you are. If you're ready to make different decisions, if you desire to learn new decision making, if you desire to be disciple, to learn his priorities, if you desire to have him not just as your savior, but make him your Lord, which means I give him my past as my savior and I give him my future as my Lord. You ready for that? Then today's your day when life pivots and when you walk out, you're a new creation in Christ. I can say, I don't know everybody here, you know that, but I know this. There are some of you who are gonna walk out today and go, today was my day that starts the rest of my life. And everybody else said amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet as we, wrap, as we wrap up the service. Can you just take a moment to lift your hands and praise him for being a God who gives a new identity. He creates, he gives us a new creation. He makes us into a new person. Nobody is stuck. If you call on him, do you wanna be made well? If the answer is yes, he's ready for you. So come on, let's praise him for a second here. I'm gonna ask everyone to remain standing with their heads bowed, no looking around, because this is a critical moment for some people today. It's not my intent to do something that embarrasses you or puts you on display. I want you to know you're in a place that honors and respects who you are. My sole purpose today is to help you accept Jesus if that's what you need to do. In just a second, I'll say, if there are those who need to accept Jesus, I will say, will you lift your hand? Now listen, I'm not gonna do anything to draw unwanted attention to you or embarrass you or single you out. But by lifting that hand, that tells me I need to lead this congregation in a prayer because you wanna accept Jesus. And that hand, you're telling me, when you lead us in prayer, pastor, I'll be asking Jesus into my life. That's what you're telling me. And so with heads bowed this morning, how many would say, when you lead in prayer, I'm gonna be asking Jesus into my life, Pastor, that's me. Can I see your hand this morning, right now? Don't wait to see what else somebody else does, you do it. Say, today's my day, yes sir. Yes ma'am, okay? Others, say, today is my day, a new walk, a new life, that's for me. Anybody else? Come on, everybody together with those who have lifted their hands, say it out loud, say, dear Jesus, I'm coming to you today. Today's my day when change enters my life. I ask that you would forgive me. And I ask that you come into my life as my Savior and as my Lord. I receive you now in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 
Come on, let's give the Lord a praise. Come on, thank you for that. Now, for those of you who accepted Christ, even if you didn't lift your hand, but you're standing there and going, man, I, I know I didn't lift it, but man, I meant every word that I just said. Two things, when you leave the facility, there's, a, there's, there's some bags by the door that say, follow Jesus, please take one of those with you to help you. The other part is this. I'm gonna give you a challenge that when we leave, you probably came with somebody. As soon as we dismiss, most people say, hey, you ready to go? You need to, you need to know how to hijack a conversation. You need to go, just a second, I need to tell you something. And they'll go, what? I accepted Jesus today. I'm pretty sure the people standing next to you would like to know that. You need to tell them. You say, well, I'm not with anybody I know today. Well, have we ever told you about the community here at the Bridge Church? If you tell somebody next to you, I promise you, you just gained a new friend. Okay, church, you can do better than that. You will have just gained a new friend. So make an effort. I'm gonna ask some of our connection group leaders, some of our church leadership to make their way. Stand across the front. Pastor Malik is gonna sing. I know there are people today who need miracles. There are people today you need prayer for family, friends situations in life and we want you to know there are people down here who are willing to take the time to stay and pray so as we sing this song if you have a need I want you to make your way and then I'm going to dismiss everybody else this morning but come on let's lift our voice before we dismiss come on begin to sing it now